0: In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we revisit a popular topic wherein we continue to look at various apparent, supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. As before, we will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, The culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand His revelation of Himself and His relationship to man. As before, as a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you, as a listener, have not done so already. Listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing And able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. In the episodes to date, we have examined and answered 42 questions regarding supposed Bible contradictions from our old friend, Mr. Ash, the atheist, skeptic, and humanist. Beginning in the last episode, we entered the double jeopardy phase of really serious Bible contradictions which constitute a fundamental attack on the Christian message. But despite how scary and difficult it may be, we continue to help Mr. Ash with his various questions regarding the veracity and consistency of God's word, the Bible. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected serious apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Did the women spread the news of the empty tomb or not? In order to concoct this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the various gospel accounts of what happened on Sunday morning when a group of women followers came to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid post-crucifixion and death and then found the tomb empty. Starting with Matthew chapter 28 verse 8, we read: quote, "And they, i, the women witnesses, departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring the disciples' word unquote. In Luke 24 verse 9, we read referring to the women witnesses, quote, And returned from the sepulchre and told all these things unto the eleven and to the rest. Mr. Ash then compares this to Mark chapter 16, verse 8, for his supposed contradiction, which says And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed, neither said they anything to any man for they were afraid, end quote. Now, here, the first thing to observe is Matthew chapter 16, verse 10, which is only two verses removed from Matthew chapter 16, verse 8, which says, referring to Mary Magdalene, who was one of the women in question, says this, quote, And she i.e. Mary Magdalene, went and told them, i.e. the other disciples, that had been with him as they mourned and wept, unquote. Well, wait a minute. What did she tell them? Well, verse 11 tells us that Mary Magdalene told the disciples, quote, that he, i.e. Jesus, was alive and had been seen of her, unquote. So, essentially, Mr. Ash is apparently purposely taking a verse out of context, isolating it, and being hyper-literal while ignoring the complete context, which lets us know that the women's silence was momentary due to their initial shock and fear of the immediate situation. Well, we could, if so predisposed, make the same unfounded, out-of-context conclusion in many cases. Uh, For example, if we turn to Mark chapter 9, we have the account of Jesus's transfiguration on the mount. In this account, Peter, James, and John accompany Jesus to the mount, where Jesus is transfigured and meets with Moses and Elijah. In verse 8, the meeting concludes, at which point Moses and Elijah are now immediately gone. Verse 8 says, And suddenly, when they, i.e. Peter, James, and John, had looked round about, they saw no man any more save Jesus only with themselves, unquote. So, if we wanted to, we could be hyper-literal, as does Mr. Ash, and assume that when verse 8 says, quote, they saw no man anymore save Jesus, unquote, that historically speaking, we should never find any instances of these three disciples' seeing any other people besides Jesus ever again. Further, if we find an instance after this of these three disciples seeing another man besides Jesus, then there is a contradiction. The Bible is faulty, and God doesn't exist. However, the common sense and contextual truth is that verse 8 simply means that once Moses and Elijah disappeared, the three disciples did not see any other people on the Mount of Transfiguration other than Jesus at that moment. Once they returned from the Mount of Transfiguration, life returned to its norm, and these three disciples saw plenty of other people in addition to Jesus. The reality is here that this is actually an old and out-of-date argument which goes back to the late 1980s. Those who posited this very argument from Mr. Ash were themselves fully aware of the spurious anti-scholarly, superficial nature of their argument, but they nonetheless put the supposed contradiction forward, hoping that either no one would actually check, or that their supposed credibility alone would carry the day. But, Here we are, despite the fact that this contradiction has been many times exposed for the sophistry that it is, various books and internet sites continue to circulate this bogus contradiction to a new generation of unsuspecting and unwary people. In the end, all three gospel writers make it clear that one or more of the women did in fact, in all three cases, eventually give witness to what they saw and heard regarding the empty tomb. Thus, once again, there is no contradiction here, and we are many miles away from anything approaching anything which presents a fundamental attack on the Christian message. If anything, Mr. Ash has once again caught himself in a fundamental attack on his own scholarship and credibility. Next up, Mr. Ash asks, Are all Christians united in what they believe about Jesus or not? In this case, Mr. Ash reads the following verses regarding a prayer from Jesus regarding his church. Johns chapter 17 verses 20 through 23 say this quote, "Neither pray i for these alone but for them also which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one as thou father art in me and i in thee that they also may be one in us" that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou givest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, and that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and has loved them as thou hast loved me." Unquote. Mr. Ash also quotes 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, where Paul says, Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment." having read these mr ash gleefully runs out to the world and concludes that because we have any number of people who slap a sticker on themselves reading quote unquote christian that the existence of myriads of people who disagree in whole or in part with one another proves that jesus's prayer has failed and god doesn't exist Predictably, there is never any assessment or evaluation of those calling themselves Christian, quote-unquote, nor is there any consideration of other verses which might have a bearing on Mr. Ash's theory. So, the first hurdle is defining what is an actual biblical definition of of what constitutes Jesus' church. What is biblical Christianity? Well, for those interested, I would direct you to the two-part episode entitled Questions About the Church, as well as the three-part episode entitled Questions About Christianity. But, in short, the true church And true Christianity is defined by God and the Bible and not simply a rubber band term without any litmus test which is nothing more than a sticker or a plaque slapped on an individual or a building reading quote unquote church or quote unquote Christian and boom we've all arrived. The second hurdle is to ask whether the quote-unquote unity or quote-unquote oneness which Jesus and Paul are talking about is supposed to be immediate and complete right now, this second? Or can it be that we are talking about the process of sanctification in every believer's life which is different from person to person? Could it be that Jesus and Paul are talking about a gradual and eventual destination and condition where sin, Satan, and the flesh are no more? This dovetails also intimately with our previous episode wherein we discussed the issue of sin, justification, and sanctification in the life of the believer. However, once again, because Mr. Ash has an abiding false equivocation, Mr. Ash assumes that the unity and oneness is defined as every believer being a robot without any personality, character, ideas, or opinions, good or bad. Likewise, we can use the same puerile, confounded logic to say that Since evolution and science are ultimately true, then we should never find any scientists or other experts who disagree in whole or in part on the details of what these things say. Uh, Further, the fact that we can find such people who disagree in whole or in part simply proves that science cannot be trusted, and that science doesn't exist. But here again the definitions and assumptions of what is or is not quote-unquote science, and who is or isn't quote-unquote a scientist unquote, is no different from needing to correctly define what is or what is not a quote-unquote church or a quote-unquote Christian. Both require some ruler by which we must measure and test said labels. The third hurdle is to stop isolating texts and use context and realize that the same Jesus who prayed for unity and oneness also predicted the following. Matthew chapter 24, verse 5, and Mark chapter 13, verse 6, quote, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many, unquote. And also Luke chapter 21, verse 8, quote, And he, I Jesus, said, Take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, "I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. Unquote. Or how about Second Timothy chapter four verses three and four? "For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables." Well, we could go on with verse after verse, where either Jesus himself or one of the disciples warn of apostasy, heresy, error, false teaching, the spirit of Antichrist, etc. Why? Well, because Jesus' is prayer and God's perfect pleasure is that his true body be unified in spirit and truth. And while the reality is that until Satan and sin are abolished forever, both Satan and sin ultimately have the potential and power to lead us all to one degree or another to be led astray. The fourth hurdle is Mr. Ash's incorrect assumption and definition of unity and oneness. Jesus is not referring to some complete monolithic set of beliefs in every single nuanced detail that every and all believers everywhere are supposed to hold true. Instead, what Jesus is referring to is the unity and oneness of reconciled fellowship between those who are truly his church, true Christians, and God. As it stands, Satan the flesh, and the world all serve as forces which would attempt to prevent or to keep every person from reconciliation and fellowship with God. However, God's plan and perfect will is that as many as have been chosen and who will, should, and will be reconciled to restored fellowship with God, which constitutes unity and oneness. So it is manifestly clear that as we read and study all of John 17, that this is precisely what the verses which Mr. Ash has lifted out of context are talking about. In the final analysis, true Christians and true churches, as defined by the Bible in context, have, in fact, an amazing unity regarding the essential question of Jesus' identity, nature, and character. As we filter down to non-essential questions and details of Jesus' life, ministry, the timing of when and how things will get done in God's soteriology and eschatology, many do have opinions which differ, and these differing opinions and the existence of denominations who incorporate themselves into varying numbers around said non-essential details does not prove that Jesus lied or that Jesus was wrong any more than the existence of differing opinions by various scientists prove that science does not exist. So, again, we do not have a contradiction because John 17 has nothing to do with all Christians and or all churches being carbon copies of one another in every single minute doctrine every single minute behavior, and every single minute belief. John 17 is about reconciled fellowship between true churches, true believers, true Christians, and the God of the Bible, which every child of God has, if so be they have an abiding faith relationship with Jesus who is God. The fact that there are Christians and churches who dissent from one another only proves that in this life we still have our sinful flesh and or that people and or places calling themselves quote-unquote churches and or quote-unquote Christian are not in fact correctly biblically defined. Moving forward, for our next apparent contradiction and fundamental attack on the Christian message, Mr. Ash asks, Do Christians know when the end of the world is or not? In order to concoct this masterpiece of confusion, Mr. Ash cites the following verses. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, But of that day and hour, knoweth no man no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Unquote. Also Mark chapter thirteen verse thirty two but of that day and that hour knoweth no man no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares this to the following verse for his supposed contradiction. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 5, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness, unquote. From all of this, Mr. Ash concludes that in one case, God's word is saying that nobody has any clue except God as to exactly when the end of the world is. And in another case, the Bible says that those who are the children of the light do know. Mr. Ash proceeds to a bandwagon logic argument giving statistics as to how many people believe that we are in the quote-unquote last days, or how many people throughout history have nailed their hat to the wall by giving a specific date for the end of the world and who have been subsequently been wrong. Uh, Further, all of these incorrect date settings or constant generational feelings and beliefs that their lifetime was the quote-unquote end of the world, are ostensibly supposed to prove not only that these people were wrong, but that the message itself, i.e. the Bible, was wrong and that God doesn't exist. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, all three of Mr. Ash's examples are in agreement, not contradiction. In the first two examples of Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, and Mark chapter 13, verse 32, both clearly tell us that no one except God the Father knows the exact, quote, day and the hour, unquote, when he has chosen to end the world and consummate his plan of redemption. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul also reminds the Thessalonians of that which was by then already common knowledge, saying, quote, "...for you yourselves know perfectly." that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Unquote. Now, notice that in all three cases, the specific quote unquote, day that the Lord will come and when the end of the world is, is not known to man. The confusion for Mr. Ash is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, where it says, quote, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness." Unquote. Mr. Ash, again, assumes and concludes that because, quote, that day, unquote, will not overtake those who are the children of the light, that the children of the light must then know which day is that day where the Lord comes as a thief. Unfortunately, Mr. Ash's conclusion is a logical fallacy let's explain by example. Assume we know that there is a thief or a burglar in existence. In this analogy, the thief is the Lord. Further, the thief has stated that he intends to one day to break into my home. In this case, the Lord, i.e. the thief, has declared his eventual return to end the world, but does not tell us precisely when he will come. Now, perhaps, as in this case, the thief, i.e. the Lord, gives us some very general clues, such as when people say, quote-unquote, peace and safety, etc. The time is near. Now, if, in fact, I believe that the thief, i.e. the Lord, exists and I trust the Lord and his promises, then I don't need to know the exact day or the hour in order to be prepared and avoid being caught off guard. Like any other thief or burglar, I can take precautions. I can get an alarm system, I can be vigilant, I can secure my valuables, etc. It is only going to be those like Mr. Ash who pretend that there is no thief and who make no preparations whatsoever, who are going to wake up and find themselves a victim of their own rebellion and denial and the thief has come and gone and their fate is fixed. In so far as the propensity for various people to fix dates based upon whatever method goes, this kind of anecdotal phenomena was predicted along with the same pronouncements from Jesus regarding no man knowing the day or the hour. For example, Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, quote, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed! That no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Also, Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, quote, And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many, unquote. Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 through 26, quote, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. The end result is that the fact that false prophets and false prophecy are present only goes to serve to further verify and demonstrate the deity accuracy, and dependability of God's word, rather than the supposed defectiveness which Mr. Ash would like to pretend. Thus, once again, rather than a supposed contradiction and or a fundamental assault on the Christian message, we see that Mr. Ash's sloppy scholarship demonstrates a fundamental assault on Mr. Ash's credibility and honesty when it comes to God's Word. This in turn causes us to seriously question Mr. Ash's credibility and honesty in general. For the next supposed contradiction and fundamental assault on the Christian message, Mr. Ash asks Doesn't Mary's adoption of John at Jesus' request present a problem? For this conundrum, Mr. Ash reads John chapter 19, verses 27 and 28, which say, When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Woman, he is your son. And he said to this disciple, She is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. From this, Mr. Ash develops irreconcilable and insurmountable issues, which supposedly cause the entire Bible to come crashing down in ashes. In specific, Mr. Ash reads into the verses here and elsewhere and concludes that since Jesus directed John to essentially adopt Mary as his mother, that he must have done so because she had nobody else to take care of her. Mr. Ash then reasons that since Mary had other children after Jesus, i.e. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, then any of these children could have taken care of Mary. And further, since others were available, Jesus' directive of adoption was illogical and unnecessary. Since Jesus made an illogical and unnecessary directive, he cannot be God, and the Bible is in error, and God doesn't exist. Okay, well, the fatal flaw to Mr. Ash's argument is that there is absolutely no mention or hint that the reason Jesus consigned John to be Mary's son was because of financial reasons. The fact of the matter is that we are not specifically given the reason why Jesus made this decision. But an absence of a known motive does not equate to a historical event being false. It simply means we're not provided with that information. Hello? The fact that Mr. Ash assigns his own straw man argument motive to Jesus on a theory without any verification and then proceeds to find other evidence, which then supposedly contradicts or disproves the manufactured straw man argument only goes to demonstrate the shell game scholarship, which Mr. Ash so frequently presents. Well, we could just as easily conjecture the following how about this john was the only male disciple present at the scene of jesus's crucifixion since mary was losing her firstborn son i.e jesus and mary would have been going through untold emotional distress at the scene of jesus's torment and death it would be logical And understandable for Jesus to direct Mary and John together into an adoptive-type relationship so that Mary could be better comforted and her grieving and shock would be lessened. So, no, there is no problem presented by Mary adopting John, unless, like Mr. Ash, you have an agenda and are willing to add unsubstantiated elements to your research— Consequently, once again, using a proper biblical world and life view, there are no contradictions here, no fundamental assaults which destroy the Christian message. There is only an inability or unwillingness for Mr. Ash to understand what the basic message of the gospel is along with the unregenerate mind of Mr. Ash, who must at all costs deny God in order to justify himself. In all, today in this series we have in each case serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of mr ash these and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the bible is not god's word but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible However, in truth, these 46 and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and His Word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P A S T O R underscore yeshua at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.
1: The world falls that He has found me Christ the rock Is my foundation I will trust in Him I will trust in Him I will trust in